0: God, I pray in these next few minutes that you'll be enjoyed. I pray that the gospel, the true, rich, Bible-exposing, Holy Spirit-exposing gospel will be on display and will be clearly communicated. I pray for an attentiveness that is uh, uncharacteristic of our generation. Um, Pray for listening that is engaging and um, active. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit will be speaking to our minds and our hearts, exposing truth to us. And I pray that it'll shape our Tuesday afternoons and Saturday mornings and um, our evenings at the dinner table, our mornings hustling out for the day. I pray that it'll shape our view on marriage shape our view on how we eat. Pray that it will shape our view on how we treat each other and um, our view of church. Pray that the gospel will be enjoyed this morning, your gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You're going to need your Bible this morning. You really need it every morning, but if you don't have a Bible, then uh, you can take that blue one in front of you, and it can be yours. (coughs) Had a few weeks off from the pulpit and have... uh, There's really some blessings in that. We are blessed as a church to have... Um, men that can stand and deliver week after week. It doesn't have to be the same man, but other men who can bring the word. It's given me a chance to just sort of listen and um, to observe. And we spent a, a week or so in Colorado. Had the chance to visit a friend in Colorado Springs and We've had time here in Greenville since then and before then. And like I said, just listening, just observing. And one of the things that I've thought about in the time that I've been out of the pulpit and just listening and sitting under uh, Scott's teaching is that we are inundated with stuff that's not the gospel. Stuff that looks like it or is cloaked in it Somehow. We're inundated with stuff that's not the gospel, and if you really look at it biblically, stuff that's not even close. Friends that we were staying with in Colorado Springs—it's a—a a woman who lost her husband a few years ago. They're—they're they're friends of ours. He um, was in the army and um, had a stroke on a treadmill and died. Left three kids and a wife, and we yearly try and get up there and visit her. She had a guest room with a book called Guideposts sitting on her bedside table in the guest room. I don't know if any of you have ever read Guideposts before. On the cover, it says, um, Stories of Hope and Inspiration. I thought, man, that's interesting. Let me take a look here. And on the cover, it's got this, this guy named Guy Fieri. I don't watch a whole lot of TV but I think this guy, if you watch Food Network, you know who this guy is. He's a chef, has blonde hair all spiked up. And I think from the pictures, it looks like he's pretty boisterous, outgoing, kind of an enigma. it uh, has got a picture of him on the front where he's scooping something up, and he's looking at the camera with his mouth open. And it says, here's to dad, Guy Fieri, Food Network star Guy Fieri. And I'm thinking, oh, that's going to be a story about, it's around Father's Day that probably came out. And I'm thinking this is probably going to be a, maybe this guy's a believer, and this going to be a story about his relationship with his father, pointing toward our relationship with our heavenly Father. Well, I turn to the story, and it's got a picture of him again with his mouth open, he's smiling at his dad, scooping up a burger, and he's putting it on his dad's plate, and his dad's looking down, kind of all uncomfortable, like, "Son, you're a goofball." And. Um, He's scooping up a burger onto his dad's plate, and the title is Just Like Dad, Why Super, Super Chef Guy Fieri Didn't Have to Look Far for the Perfect Role Model. So I'm reading it, and I'm thinking, man, this has got to go toward Christ. This is, a, this is about stories of hope and inspiration. So it starts out, who's my greatest inspiration? No, it's not a chef. goes on. My biggest inspiration, the best role model this guy, as in play on words, could ever hope for it's my dad, hands down. And that's, that's harmless, innocuous, if it's going to make the journey that I was hoping that it would make. Well, I read the rest of the story, and it made no journey toward God. There's no mention of God, no mention of Christ, no mention of faith. Um, it's just absolutely and completely godless. The next story was about a dog named Super Lance that gets paralyzed in his his rear legs and his tail, and they made a little cart for him to where he could wheel around the rest of his life on a cart. I thought, man, stories of hope and inspiration? Make a burger for your pop and put your dog in a wheelchair. Man, I'm not inspired. That that didn't do it for me. I'm on Facebook. I know a lot of y'all are because we communicate on Facebook sometimes or I see what's going on in your lives. I had somebody friend me this week, early on in the week. Those of you that aren't on it, that's a term for we became friends. In the virtual world, we were already friends. or You would think, in this case, actually, it was a high school acquaintance that I couldn't pick out in a crowd of two it was weird. She, friends, she wants to be friends, and I pull her out. Who in the world is this? And she graduated in 1985 in Alexander Senior High School. Well, she doesn't look like a serial killer. I, okay, I'll friend you. <laughs> so I become her friend, and then I watch over the course of the week, and she posts something every single day that's called Message from God. I bet if you're on Facebook, you've seen this. It's got like a little icon that has letters... That are made of clouds, cloudy letters, message from God. And then it's got like a little thought for the day. And man, I wanna hear a message from God. So I read it and I'm like, man, what's up? What does God have to say? And on this day, I think it was Wednesday, it may have been Tuesday, God said, on this day, God wants you to know that there are times when a change of direction is for your highest good. It takes courage to change direction. Choose the path your heart agrees with and walk with your head high and your eyes open. Don't be afraid. I read it once and then I read it again. Man, that doesn't sound like God. Walk with your head held high makes me think of the fact that God hates a haughty look. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. That's a message from God. But it's cloaked in righteousness. It's a message from God right there in cloudy letters. And I thought, man, don't follow what your heart says because our God tells us that our heart is deceitful above all else. Who can know it? Please don't follow your heart. I don't think that's a message from God. I think that's a message from my high school friend via my high school friend, from someone else. I actually went to try and find out what the source of it was, and it was one of those things that wants to collect data on you. Before you could find out the source of the messages from God, you have to give it access to all your information. And I'm thinking, what is this, like marketing or like a marketing firm collecting data somehow? Because these certainly aren't messages from my God. Here's the next day. On this day, God wants you to know that vices can be turned to virtues through, you ready? Man, I was ready for this. Awareness. (laughs) So if you have a eating problem, all you got to do is look in the mirror. And it's fixed. I mean, seriously, that's what it says. Look for a daily practice to cultivate your awareness. I'm thinking to myself, man, that's not a message from God. I've been aware of my frailties for a long time. And simple awareness leaves me dead in the water. And this is just a little sampling, just a tiny sampling of things that we're inundated with. We're all inundated with these things. It reminds me of a passage in 1 Thessalonians 5 that says, test everything. Not some things. Test everything. Everything, because there's lots and lots and lots of stuff out there that calls itself faith that, frankly, is total bullcrap. Lots of stuff has nothing to do with our gospel. Today, we're going to deal with the gospel Today, we're going to deal with what it is from our Bibles, and we're going to connect with what it is, and in many ways, by doing that, we're going to connect with what it isn't. And given where we've been in John, man, we are ripe for this, and I'm about to show you why. We're going to look at John, where we've been in John, in the macro. Don't turn to John. In fact, if you want to turn somewhere, turn to Romans, Romans chapter 3. I want to show you why we're ripe for this as a church, why we need to engage the gospel this morning. Consider the three-year ministry of Christ. The beginning of that ministry, he called and created a people called Disciples, a group of men that we've gotten to know, a group of men that are frail and feeble, a group of men that you just have to scratch your head and say, "Man, how did this happen?" We've got to know these men of our last few years in John. And where we are in John chapter 15, we're sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his crucifixion. Eleven of them, Judas has left the table. Consider these men for a moment as sort of micro-Israel. A little micro-picture of the nation of Israel. Like Israel received the law at Mount Sinai, the disciples heard the law recast in the Sermon on the Mount toward the beginning of his ministry. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, it sounds a lot like the law. In fact, he says over and over again, you've heard it said this, and I take this and I raise it. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say that if you even do it in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. You've heard it said thou shall not murder. But I say that if you've been angry, then you're awaiting judgment. There's this picture of the Sermon on the Mount being a picture of the law of Mount Sinai. I think John wants us to get this point. I think he wants us to connect to this picture of this three-year ministry, bringing a micro version of that. Because early on in the book of John, in John chapter 1, verse... 14, he says, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And he's speaking of Christ. That word for dwelt is tabernacled. But these years that he spent on earth is sort of like the wilderness journey where the people of God went to the tabernacle to see God. I think John wants us to see this picture, the beginning of the ministry being like a Mount Sinai where the law is cast And then these guys, these little micro picture of Israel, follow him for three years, sort of a micro wilderness journey. And then at the twilight of Christ's earthly ministry, like Moses climbed Mount Nebo to look over into the promised land, Christ climbs the Mount of Olives. And like God, through Moses, calls the people to obey him and not to stray from him in the land that he's giving them, Christ calls his disciples to where we've been in John chapters 14 and 15. He calls them to abide in me, and I will abide in you, and you will bear much fruit. Obey my commandments. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we'll make our home with him. It sounds a lot like the promises made to Israel from Nebo. And then... Like Israel, who completely showed their behinds in the following years. The disciples do the same hours later. If you're familiar with the story of Israel, you know from that point that everything wasn't rosy when they went into the promised land. The first generation seemed to kind of keep it in the middle of the road. But by the second generation, they were marrying foreign wives and they were doing what our Bibles call whoredom. And we look at the disciples on the night of Christ's arrest, on the eve of his crucifixion, and we see him scattering like chickens. Peter so painfully illustrates even the best of us when he even goes on beyond that to deny his Lord three times the same lord whom he had made so many promises to i will never abandon you jesus i will die for you when you really take it in you have to wonder what gives when you really get to know the nation of israel and you really get to know the disciples you have to begin to ask the question what gives When you take a good look at Israel, you take a good look at the disciples, you have to agree that there's no consistent inherent righteousness in either. You look at Israel and you don't see it. You look at the disciples and you don't see it. And frankly, if I look at myself, I don't see it. I don't see any inherent consistent righteousness. I don't see that man by nature is good. We might hope that the flood fixed this problem, but it didn't. After the flood, our Lord God makes a promise to Noah in a new covenant. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart. I wish it said, was evil from his youth. But it says, is. You think our times now, you think your condition's any different And those who took a long swim, when you really take it in, you really consider, you have to ask the question, what gives? How can a holy and just God put up with us without somehow compromising His holiness and His justice? That's got to be a question that you've got to ask. Because it leads us where we've got to go. It creates the serious itch, an itch in the middle of your back that you can't scratch on your own. It creates a quandary that can only be scratched and solved with one thing, and it's called justification. Justification in and through and by the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that scratches that itch. We saw it on the screen this morning, Romans 3.26 He is both just and justifier of the unrighteous. How can a just God also be justifier of the unrighteous? Something has got to happen. Something has got to intervene. Our God not only pays the penalty for our sin in Christ, in our place, but He obeys perfectly what we haven't in our place. That's justification. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, if some of you studied the Sermon on the Mount before, you're reading it going, man, how can I resist not the evil man? I want to hose down the evil man. How can I turn the other cheek? I want to put something else upside that cheek. You read the Sermon on the Mount, you go, man, I can't do that. We shouldn't read the Sermon on the Mount saying, I can't do that. We should read the Sermon on the Mount going, Jesus did that. He resisted not the evil man because he stood silently like a sheep before shears and took our punishment. He fulfilled what we can't and haven't. That's the good news of the gospel. That's justification. Because of his work, we are reckoned. We are counted, we are credited righteous. That's what justification is. While we are yet not, while we were yet sinners, and while we were yet enemies of God. That's the scandal of the gospel. Stories about making a burger for your daddy don't cut it. I need something more. A message from God that really just says, you're your own God, doesn't cut it. I need a real message of hope and inspiration, and that's it right there. The scandal of the gospel, that we are reckoned friends with a holy God, that he is both just and justifier, scandal. When you really take it in, it should leave you amazed, dumbfounded, blessed, shocked, surprised, elated, ravaged. That's what I want for you today. I want you, I want us to get the gospel right. Given where we've been in John chapter 15, we might just start think that we could actually please God. We might actually start to believe that we could obey him perfectly. And that we could somehow earn or contribute to our righteousness. We need to be reminded as a people that we wear the righteousness of another. That's good news. That's what I'm praying for this morning. I'm praying that you can engage the right gospel because I know that it will change your view on life. It will change your view on marriage. It will change your view on work, parents, food, sleep, recreation, a sunrise, even a death. It will change your view on all those things. And if you get it wrong, here's the bad news. You have nothing to live for. If you get the gospel wrong... You're in league with every other religion that rides the roller coaster of good day, bad day, good boy, bad boy, penance, false assurance. I've been a good boy today. You'll ride a roller coaster that's built out of toothpicks, and it's going to be fun for a little while, but it's going to crash. We're going to go to Romans. I'm going to begin in chapter 3. Let me give you a heads up where I'm going text-wise. One of the things, if you were paying attention, something I prayed for at the beginning of the message is that we could hear in a way that's not typical of folks in our generation or generations. Because we hear in sound bites. Give me a snippet. And we need to hear stories. I'm going to read chapters 3. 4 and the first part of chapter 5. You may have never sat and listened to that much scripture before, but I'm begging you to just engage it. If you're a better listener with your eyes closed and just hearing, then just listen audibly. If you want to see it, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, starting in page 940, chapter 3. <clears throat> then what advantage has the Jew... Paul has just let the Romans know that there's bad news, that mankind has traded the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The man is crossways with God, so now he starts dealing with the Jew. So what's up with the Jew, this people group that God has specifically shown up to? He's writing to a bunch of Greeks, realize that. He's explaining the situation with the Jew. What advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Listen to this passage. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, key passage, what shall we say? God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if, another key passage, through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks and you and me and your children and your parents and your brothers and your sisters and your friends and your workmates and everybody that you've ever known, everybody that you will ever know, Are under sin. As it is written, none means none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Not even Guy Fieri making burgers for his daddy. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. Add us all up, and together we're worthless. No one does good, not even. For by works of the law, by being a good boy, no human being will be justified in God's sight. No human being means no human being. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, if you fail in one part of the law, you failed in all parts. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, apart from being a good boy. Or is God and the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, even Gentiles? Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by his faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? More key passages. Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by being a good boy by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God he doesn't. Ha! Not before a holy and perfect God he doesn't. I don't care how good a boy he's been. But what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted. It was reckoned. It was credited to him as Righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Another key passage. And to the one who does not work, says, I'm not going to be driven by being Mr. Good Boy, but trust instead in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted, it is credited, it is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it's the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void because you can't be a good boy enough. You can't be good enough. For the law brings wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on Grace, and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, "I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom He believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Remember he's talking Abraham, Isaac. Who gives life to dead wombs like Sarah's and calls into existence things that do not exist like Isaac, a little boy born to an old man and a barren old woman. You want to know what the gospel looks like? That's what it looks like. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. When he considered his own frailties, his faith didn't weaken, which was as good as dead, his body, since he was about 100 years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, he didn't look at his old wife and say, this can't happen. He said, this thing that's been promised to me, comes from outside of me. And I'm putting my faith on something outside of me. Something from a source that's outside of me. Because I know, obviously, I don't have it. That's a picture of the gospel. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew here, journey, strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. He just believed God, and he believed in God. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. But here's the good news, but for ours also. It was credited to him. It was counted to him. It was reckoned to him as righteousness, and that's the good news for us here. 3,500 years later, after Abraham, actually 4,000 years later, The words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Period. Don't put your name in there. Don't put if you've had a good week in there. <laughs> Don't put if you think you're more good than bad in there. He's making the point that this faith, this reconciling with the living God is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice even in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. We look at our bodies, we look at our frailties, we look at our failings, and we could say shame, but we have hope in spite of that, because our hope is in another. That's the good news. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we still look like Abraham and Sarah, old, decrepit, barren, unlikely. Christ died for the ungodly and old and barren and frail and incompetent. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more that we are reconciled, now that we are reconciled, shall be saved by his Life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I want to show you two things, just two things. First, that man, every man, has a severe problem. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. This is not an exaggeration. You've got to understand this as you hear this read. You might think about a nice neighbor or a good friend or somebody that you think is good. You might even think about yourself. But you've got to read this passage and know that Paul, who would probably be the best person we've ever met in our entire lives, is the one writing these words. He says both Jews and Greeks Are under sin. He says none is righteous. No not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together add them up. They become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Golly, Paul. <laughs> Isn't that a little heavy? And Paul is developing something here that this is the, the foundation of the good news. You can't get the good news except that you engage this. It's not good news unless you engage this. It's just news. If you engage this, then it becomes good news. Scandalous news. Verse 20, by the works of the law, by being a good boy, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You failed in one part, you failed in all parts for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God all means all what happens if you don't see this well god becomes your life coach if you don't see this then this becomes your food nifty stories about a guy making burger for his daddy If you don't see your desperate situation, then you can live from message to God, cloudy message lettering, to message to God. And that'll be sufficient. If you see this, then you're going, wait a second, this isn't enough. This is not hope and inspiration to me. I need something more. I need some really good news. I can make lots of burgers for my dad, and I'm still stuck. I can be aware of my frailties and I'm still stuck. I need some good news. But if you don't engage your real condition, and God is just your life coach and the gospel just becomes life improvement. <clears throat> if you don't see this, the need and dependence will only be reserved for your real crises. You lose a loved one or a friend, or you get a bad prognosis from the doctor, or you lose your job, and you're like, Jesus, I need Jesus. What about Tuesday? If you engage this, and you really engage this, and like every day, you're like, man, I need him today. Every day's a crisis without my Jesus. I need the blood of Jesus every single day. Not just for my crisis, but for my daily worship. It fuels worship if you get it. If you don't, he's just something that you grab in times real crummy. If you don't see this, you won't cherish what God has really done. Romans 3, 5. It's a little hard to see. Paul is explaining to the Romans why God was not unrighteous that all the Jews didn't believe on him. On Christ. He's explaining that God didn't fail because the Jews were unrighteous. And here's something he says. He says it, to it twice, two different ways. In verse 5, he says, If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. Won't you hear that? If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. He's implying that he does. Our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. He says it a different way in verse 7. If through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. See, here's the problem. If you don't engage your real condition and who you really are without righteousness that comes from someone else, you can't even see the righteousness of God. If you don't have a view of your unrighteousness that serves to show the righteousness of God, you can't see the righteousness of God. It's just news. And in fact, God can kind of become a talisman. I'll go grab this decision and put it on the shelf, and that collected with everything else, maybe I won't go to hell. It doesn't become your very air, your very food. The thing that you cling to, claw to. Because you haven't engaged your unrighteousness. So you can't even see the righteousness of God. You don't see your unrighteousness. You don't see your lie. And you don't see his truth. Made me think about Job. Don't turn there. Just listen. Job, man, talk about a righteous guy. I mean, he even says he's blameless blameless and all this crummy stuff happens to him and he talks with God over the course of the whole book and then God answers him says dress up like a man I'm about to answer you big boy where were you dot 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 about four chapters long and then in chapter 42 it says Job says I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear but now my eye sees you therefore I Despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I'll tell you what goes with seeing God is a true recognition of your own condition. Job says, I despise myself. In this day and age, man, that gospel is like, oh, that's just kind of unsavory, man. We want people to feel good about themselves. No, I want you to feel what the Bible says about yourself. You can't see the righteousness of God except that you see your unrighteousness. Job says, now I see God, and you know what? I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. You won't see His truth or His righteousness, because it will be covered by a false truth and a false righteousness of your own. It's not hard to conjure up. We're great at it. You'll begin to think that you're deserving of things going your own way in your own time. I'll tell you something else that will happen. Romans chapter 4 verse 4. He brings it out right here. In verse 4 he says, Now to the one who works, that's who we're describing here. This one who doesn't get the real gospel. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. Something that'll happen if you don't see your real condition is you become a worker and you'll slip into thinking you're due your wages. And you'll be confused when stuff really hits the fan. What's up, God? I've been a good boy this week. You're going to be real confused. You're going to feel like God has somehow betrayed you. This guy, this chapter 4, verse 4 guy that works for his wages is contrasted with Abraham who's gifted with righteousness. This guy that works for his wages is a worker and not a worshiper. And here's what the worker says. Listen to what it says because it doesn't sound all that bad. The worker says, I want to be a better man tomorrow than I was today. And I trust that God will bless me. sounds pretty innocuous, harmless. I want to be a better man tomorrow than I was today and it seems fair to hear that sort of statement. It's really easy to land in this place. I want you to see this. Turn to Luke chapter 18. This is such an important passage. We've gone here a couple times in the last couple weeks or since I've, when I preached a few weeks ago and I keep coming back to this. Man, I've Told this story a hundred times. And I presented the Pharisee like a caricature. And now I'm beginning to see us more and more in this dude. Listen to this story Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's the worker. He told this story. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That goes hand in hand, by the way. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee I have presented like a goober for a long time. And now I'm seeing that he's more familiar than I realize. The Pharisee is standing by himself and he prayed thus. God, I thank you. Notice the trajectory He's putting the responsibility on God for what he's about to say. I thank you I'm not like other men. Because you've made me not like other men. I thank you that I'm not an extortioner. That I'm not unjust. That I'm not an adulterer. Or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Putting the responsibility on God though. That's easy to do. That could sound like most of us. Man, I'm sure I'm glad I'm not doing that. I'm sure I'm glad I've never done that. God has worked that in me, and I give him the responsibility. We went to the the circus this week. I took Daniel and Christy and Will uh, McCullough. We went to the circus, and something I noticed about circus people is they don't bend their knees. They all just kind of prance, and they do like this all the time. Everything is like this. I mean, they walk on the stage, and they they don't bend their knees. They just prance. Look at me. That's the worker. Look at me. I've had a good week. I don't bend my knees. (laughs) I'm really pretty amazing. I thank you that I'm not like other men. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes. He bent his knees. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. A sinner. You just hear that dude saying, I am totally unrighteous. I am totally undeserving of the righteousness that is given me from something outside of me. I am an absolutely, completely a sinner. I tell you this, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. The other guy said, God, you've done this. You've done this. But the other guy says, man, I have no righteousness. On my best day... <laughs> I'm not righteous, contrasted with true holiness. On my best day, all I've got is filthy rags. When you consider the tax collector and the Pharisee, you've got to appreciate that the Pharisee gave God the glory for his goodness. And you might imagine that he might give the testimony, I want to be a good boy today and tomorrow and even better the next day. Man, it's so easy to do this. At the heart of this, this worker like guy that is so easy to be any of us is really our own glory. Look at me, I'm a good boy. I don't know what this guy, the circus guy, the Pharisee, does with his fumbles. What does he do with his fumbles? What does he do when he really steps on it? When he really messes up? What does he do when he's really embarrassed himself in front of lots of other people? When he's made a total horse's butt of himself in front of his own family? What does he do with that? Does he weigh it on scales and say, well, I had more good days than I've had bad days. So there you go, God. Does he conceal it? Does he talk himself out of it that it really didn't happen? Oh, I don't do this. This just doesn't happen. We just don't do this. Or does he blame everything else? This worker, I believe, scrambles to cover their sin, and they don't do a very good job of of it. If you really get this, if you really get our unrighteousness and our absolute need, not just at the beginning of the journey of faith, but today, to be clothed in the righteousness of another, then you see those moments where you fumble as little micro seminars in grace. You see them as little classes, like continuing ed on the journey of faith that reminds you of the greatness of the gospel. And you don't go, oh, great, I showed my behind to the whole world. I sure am glad. If you're like me, you spend a moment there going, oh, that that was bad, man. I'm really embarrassed. But the next Beth you go, oh, the gospel's so good. I had one of these moments a couple weeks ago. I shared this story with Mike and Abby. We have a uh, Honda van that's only about a year old. We drive that bad boy. We got like thirty-three thousand miles on it, and I say thirty-three because I'm watching this because at thirty-six thousand it goes out of warranty. And here's the problem: our windshield wipers started working sporadically, or stopped working sporadically. However, you this is the glass half full or half empty. I don't know which. As far as I'm concerned, it's all empty because when you need your windshield wipers, you need your windshield wipers. You know, on a sunny day, you don't just turn them on and go, I wonder if they're working or not. When you turn them on, it's raining. (laughs) And for them to be working half the time is a problem. So here's the deal, and I'm I'm so frustrated about this because I'm watching our mileage tick off and I'm imagining what a windshield wiper motor for a Honda is going to cost $800, probably. I'm like, man, I want this thing to just go out. I want it to be catastrophic failure so I can go get it fixed. Because it's hard to troubleshoot something that's kind of half broke. That's bad grammar, half broken. So anyway, we had a couple of rainy days, and both days they weren't working. So I was like, okay, I'm calling the Honda dealership. We're in the car, and we're just trying to kind of get these things working, you know, by hand. Uh, I call the Honda dealership in McKinney. I set up an appointment. I explain to the guy. He says, hey, no problem. We can do some troubleshooting. We'll figure out what's going on. I'm like, okay, good, finally. So Monday morning, I roll in there. Man, when the doors open, er, you know, I roll into the service bay. It's always sort of a kind of a frightening moment because you're about to take my money. (laughs) But it's under warranty, so I'm I'm not that scared. And a lady comes up. She's my service advisor, and I got to make a confession. I would prefer to have a male service advisor. I, I love that Lord made women. I'm married to one. I have a daughter. When it comes to my car, I would prefer a dude. I just would. So this lady service advisor comes up, but I'm okay. You know, I'm not making a big deal. I'll give me a man. I didn't do anything like that. <clears throat> She starts asking me the situation. I'm telling, explaining to her, and I said, yeah, watch. And I flip on the wiper thing, and it's working. <laughs> I'm like, man, that's so frustrating. And she said, well, sir, if it's not broken, we can't fix it. I said, oh, no. <laughs> it's broken. It may not look like it. But something is not right in there, and we need to do some troubleshooting. I'm sorry, sir. Maybe you have to come in when it's not working. And I got louder and louder. I didn't make a complete horse behind of myself. Maybe it's like half of a horse behind. I asked for the manager, service manager. He came out, and he's, you know, when you call for the service manager, you got to, somebody's upset. And I wasn't shouting, again it wasn't a major scene, but might as well have been. I've done it before. I was louder than I would have been here in Greenville. And don't say the thought didn't enter my mind. I'm glad I'm in McKinney. Nobody knows me here. <laughs> <laughs> so the service manager says, Okay, sir, we'll do some troubleshooting and if you got a little bit of time, and I was like, okay, I need to study, so I go sit in the in there, you know. So the, the service advisor, the lady, Lori, um, she says, come back over to the computer, sir. We'll get your rest of your information filled out. <clears throat> so she asked me all this personal, not personal, personal, but like my data, you know, she'd plug into the computer. She asked me for my email address. P-A-S, T-O-R, V N. Mike, Mike said, you should have told him your name was Paul Astorben. <laughs> I said, well, that might have been fitting. But, um, P-A-S-T-O-R-B-E-N. I gave her an apology later. Um, man, here's the real question. Has anybody ever messed anything up? this week? Anybody ever been a total horse's butt to their family members, people that you should love more than anybody? Anybody ever done that with a friend at church, part of your church? Man, I realized that through my unrighteousness that the righteousness of God is on display. And it gives me hope. Not when I show my behind, but if I show my behind. It's a little micro-seminar in grace. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. <coughs> Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair on her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who touching him, for she's a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A Certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. It's just news. For Simon, it's just news. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. It's good news for her. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Your unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. Through your lie, God's truth. Abounds. If you miss out on your unrighteousness and your desperate need for a Savior, it's just news. We've got a problem. Every one of us. No one is righteous. No, not one. But our Creator, here's the second part and it's brief. Our Creator took the initiative to help us with our problem. Go back to Romans chapter 5, if you're already there. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, While we were still weak, like Abe and Sarah's body, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. The wages of our sin is death, but Christ died in our place, in place of the ungodly. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You to know how God loves us. That's how God loves us. If you have another, if you never take another healthy breath, if you never have another whole meal, if you never spend another night under shelter, don't call God unloving like he's forgotten about you because that's love right there. That Christ died for the ungodly and the sinner. That's love. And in verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. While enemies were reconciled through Christ's death. I want you to see what justification is. I want to show you how it works. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. If Abraham was justified by works by being a good boy, he has something to boast about, but not before God. He could say, hey, dudes, other people in my horizontal experience, I'm better than you are. It's not hard to find somebody that you're better than. That's not hard. You can boast. In that direction. But you can't boast before God because no one's righteous before God regarding the works of the law. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted, it was credited, it was reckoned to him as righteous versus the worker. The worker, one who works, his wages are not counted, they're not credited, they're not reckoned to him, but they're given as a gift. They're his due. You don't want to be a worker because the worker gets what he's due. And you know what we're due? The wages of sin is death. You don't want your due. We want to be a worshiper, not a worker. To the one who does not work, to the one who says, I will not be driven by being a better boy tomorrow than I was today. I will not live that way, but I will trust him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted, reckoned, credited as righteous. That's the scandal of the Christian faith. Every other religion is a, is, is a religion of checks and balances, of weights and scales. Ours is one where we are already counted deficient, but we are credited and reckoned and given a righteousness that's not our own. It's credited like you've got a debt that you can't pay. Some of these things where you can buy furniture where you don't pay for it for like three years but yet it accrues interest. For three years the whole time you're thinking I'm going to start paying on that eventually. In fact, I'm going to pay it off before I had to pay interest. And you don't. And that interest has made it like triple for furniture that's broken didn't even last. And you're getting that statement. You're going, dude, I can't pay that. Someone else shows up and pays your bill. Someone else, not you. You couldn't pay it. Someone else pays the debt and credits your account. That someone takes the initiative, finds you in your deficient account, reconciles it, and credits you. You didn't do the work. And here's the scandal of the gospel. He keeps it credited. When you have to spell P A S T O R B E N, he keeps your account balanced, he keeps it credited. That's the righteousness that you are reckoned, that you are credited, that is counted toward you. That's the good news of the gospel. It has two parts. Propitiation is where he absorbs the wrath that you are due for your sin. And imputed righteousness is the other half, where you are given, are granted, are credited a righteousness that you don't have. That's the scandal of justification. Someone else pays your penalty, and someone else earned your righteousness. When we read of Satan tempting Christ in the wilderness, we should cheer. We should cheer when we see Jesus not succumbing to that temptation. When we see Jesus obeying the Father perfectly, when we see His righteousness, we should see Him earning what we've already lost. That's good news. We need this righteousness so bad because we are nothing apart from Him. On our best day, the best we have to offer is filthy rags in contrast with holiness I want to tell you all that worship is bringing these rich truths to bear. I saw on the news this week that Anne Rice, an author, has renounced Christianity. And I want to find out, what has she renounced? She said she doesn't want to be anti-gay, anti-democrat, anti-abortion, and anti-feminist, or something like that. I can't remember what the other one was. To her, that's what Christianity is. I hope, as people who've walked together in the Word together, who have just engaged what our gospel is, we're saying, how could anybody walk away from that? That good news scandalizes me. That good news is supposed to invade a difficult marriage. It's supposed to invade a Tuesday morning. It's not just something that is the beginning of your journey of faith, it's Every moment where you go, I need the blood of Jesus just now, right now. I need to be clothed in His righteousness today. When these rich truths are brought to bear on a Tuesday, on a difficult marriage, on a disappointing prognosis, when they're brought to bear on how you eat, and what you find your satisfaction in, What we all medicate with. Then we're calling it worship. When those truths invade. Where you by nature might be like. I don't like to get to know people. But the gospel is brought to bear on you. Where it invades you so that you want to know and be known. That's called worship. When these truths invade everything. Everything. And we're calling that worship. We have those little micro seminars in grace. And we've really fumbled. We make a beeline to the cross. And we enjoy the gospel more. We let that be the tutor that it's supposed to be. And when you see it in someone else, you make a beeline to the cross. When you see it in someone else, you remind them and you take them with you on your beeline to the cross. And you say, man, that's our only hope. They were clothed in the righteousness of another. It should never leave us in a place of sinning all the more that grace may abound. Whatever. It should leave you in a place where you're captivated with Christ. Where instead of saying, I want to be a better man tomorrow than I was today, you're saying, I want to love Jesus more tomorrow than I do today. I want to need him more tomorrow than I do today. I want to be clothed in his righteousness more tomorrow than I am today. I want to be more satisfied with Him tomorrow than I am today. That's worship. As Christ becomes more and more your delight, and this vertical worship is bent into horizontal expression where someone says, I will worship my Savior in and through a difficult marriage. I will love her as I have been loved. I will forgive her as I have been forgiven. I will reckon her righteous as I've been reckoned righteous, even though she doesn't deserve it any more than I did or do. That's where the gospel is brought to bear on Tuesday. That's worship. Consequences of getting this wrong is that what you call worship of God may be worship of yourself. Consequences of getting it wrong is that you may say you love Jesus, yet you really love yourself. Consequences of getting it wrong is that you will think less of the cross than you should. You will think less of grace than you should. You will participate in and, God forbid, perpetuate in your children a religion that's no different than any other in this world. Based on deposits and withdrawals and transactions that result in heaven. A roller coaster ride doomed. The blessings of getting it right that God has made much of, and you're made little of, and you're okay with that. Christ becomes your absolute hope and enjoyment, not just when you have a crisis. Your faith is transformed from a list of do's and don'ts to something with a trajectory aimed at the person and work of Jesus Christ. You will be gripped by grace. You will be amazed by it, surprised by it. And last, at least last on my list, is that you'll experience not some feigned humility, but real humility when you say, why should I benefit from this cross? Why should God be so good to be mindful of the likes of me? Your heart will be like an alabaster vial broken where worship spills out. Real humility like this will survive any assault. Real humility like this will survive any insult and any loss. The thing I want you to get today more than anything is that Christ is our righteousness. Not was. On the day you began the journey of faith. Is is. Someone asks you why you feel like you're going to go see the Lord and be in heaven? Your answer must be because of the righteousness that I'm clothed in, it's the righteousness of another. Christ is my righteousness. That's got to be our answer. We're going to take the supper together and that's what I want you to be engaging If you can't engage that, if you think that you have some sort of righteousness apart from Christ, like you're somehow making up the difference, don't take this supper. It's not for you. But for those who've spelt Pastor Ben this week, Or who will later today. Whatever your version is. Those who've had a seminar. Man, let's take this supper together, man. I have no righteousness apart from Christ. He is my righteousness. Let's take the supper together if you're in that place. Christ is our righteousness. That ought to be really good news. It's such good news for me as a pastor and a father and a husband, as a worshiper. Because I know me. Some of y'all have been around me enough to know me too. And you go, yeah, it's a good thing Christ is your righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. I know some of y'all, most of y'all well enough to know good thing Christ is your righteousness. <laughs> right? We don't have to put on airs. Don't put on airs. Put on Christ that's the good news church ought not be a gathering of a bunch of people acting like we got it all figured out and everything's together and tidy everything because man we, we need the blood of Jesus we all need it bad and church is a gathering of people that are reminding each other of that and we're going look at Christ remember him his blood is sufficient And we run to this meal each week as a reminder. As we take this cup, let's say this together. Christ is my righteousness. Say it. Christ is my righteousness. Lord God, as we continue in song and in giving. Lord, I just am amazed that we can make that statement. That Christ is our righteousness. First of all, that you would send him. Well, in front of that, that you would give us a whole Old Testament that talks about him. A prophet like Moses that will come someday. A whole book full of prophecy pointing toward him, explaining him, preparing the world for him. And then that you would send him and then he would live sinlessly, perfectly fulfilling the law. The thing that we can't do. The Sermon on the Mount that leaves us all so deficient leaves Him the victor. Lord, as we say and proclaim that Christ is our righteousness too, we see our sin placed on Him, our guilt placed on Him. Lord, I pray that it leaves us ravaged. Thank You so much for the beauty and glory of the gospel. That's true hope. We're left inspired. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.